Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul. I am one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, so glad that you're with us this morning. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's an honor to preach God's word. Uh, and if this, is, if, if this is your first time here, you're visiting, um, I just want you to know that you're welcome. I hope that you've felt welcome. Um, and if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you're kind of looking in from the outside, as it were, I want you to know that you're welcome too. With all of your questions, doubts, wrestles, whatever it is that's going on, I know that I speak for every covenant member here when I say that we look forward to hearing your story, to sharing ours, and that we're grateful that our paths have crossed like this this morning. So welcome. Welcome one and all to Sojourn. This morning we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We're jumping ahead a little bit from last week's passage uh, to chapter 4, starting in verse 1, as you heard Dodds read, the parable of the sower. This is the first of several parables we're given in Mark uh, concerning the kingdom of God. Parables are essentially metaphors or comparisons 
I think I'm tangled here. Sorry. There we go. Okay. Uh, parables are essentially metaphors uh, or comparisons drawn from the natural world or from just ordinary life uh, that are told in order to grab our attention and challenge us, uh, whether directly or indirectly, to respond in some way, uh, which often becomes apparent as we wrestle with the meaning, chew on it for some time. Often a parable will come in a form that seems so familiar to us that its true meaning can be missed by those who hear it. If you're familiar with the Bible, you may be familiar with the story of King David, which is told in First and Second Samuel, and David has this very well-known sin against a woman named Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to David, and Nathan tells David a parable about a rich man taking advantage of a poor man. And David gets so engaged with this parable, he gets incensed with anger at this rich man, saying this rich man ought to die, and he misses the whole point of the parable. Nathan basically has to yell at him and say, you are the man. King David misses the point of the parable. Parables are this way. They're sometimes so familiar that their true meaning can be concealed from their hearers. And in the parable of the sower, as we just heard read, the sower goes out to sow seeds, and we watch as seeds land in different kinds of soil, yielding different results. And if we're given just the parable itself, we'd be left kind of wondering at the meaning. Who's the sower? What are the seeds? What do the soils represent? But with this parable, we're also given the interpretation from Jesus himself, telling us that the seed is the word, that the different soils represent different responses that the preaching of the word receives. So here's our plan for this morning. First, we're going to look at some context by looking at point one, two different kingdoms. Point two, we're going to look at four different soils. And then point three, we're going to look at the greater power. So first, point one, let's look at two different kingdoms. In this first point, before we get to the parable of the sower itself, I want us to look at a little bit of context. And we'll do this by looking at three different instances, details of Jesus's ministry. We're going to look at how Jesus starts his ministry at one of the stories that Jesus tells and one of the prayers that Jesus prays. So first, look back for a moment. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to Mark chapter 1 if you'd like. That's not required. I'll read these scriptures for you. But back in Mark chapter 1, we're told in verse 14 that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus comes into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's three phrases in this, this first sermon that Jesus gives. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. To start with that third phrase for just a moment, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you've probably heard the call to repent and believe in the gospel. Usually when we hear that, we think of the gospel as referring to Jesus' death and resurrection, his death for sins and his resurrection uh, to conquer, uh, to, to, to secure victory over sin and death. And while that's certainly, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the center of the gospel story, it's interesting to know that this is not exactly the thing that Jesus is talking about here when he mentions believe the gospel. He hasn't died yet. So what is it? What is the gospel that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's right there in the first two phrases. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. The king has arrived, and with him has come the kingdom. And what does this mean? Well, this means a lot of things. For right now, let's look at a couple of details as we go on about what the, the arrival of the kingdom means, what it looks like. If we read on in chapter 1 and we see what happens next, the next thing that happens is Jesus calls the first disciples. 
We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He goes up to these fishermen, Simon and Andrew, uh, and he calls them saying, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. So Jesus, this king, announces the arrival of his kingdom. And then if you go with me for just a minute, he begins building this army. And we see already that it's definitely not looking like an army that the kingdom of the world would have called together. Jesus chooses people who were just ordinary fishermen. They wouldn't have been seen by those around as those who would be called to change the world. Then right after this, we come to the first miracle that Jesus performs. Jesus takes his disciples into the synagogue in Capernaum. And while he's teaching, a demon manifests in one of the hearers. We're told that a man who has an unclean spirit cries out, Mark chapter 1, verse 24. This is the demon speaking. What have you to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus rebukes the demon and casts him out. The first miracle that Jesus performs does battle against the spiritual enemy. So what I want us to see here is that Mark is painting a picture pretty deliberately for us at the beginning of his gospel. There are two kingdoms at war. Here comes a new king who announces the arrival of his kingdom. He starts building his army and then he fights the first battle against the real enemy. Jesus is recruiting, in other words, disciples who won't be merely preachers, witnesses in word alone, but they will be spiritual warriors. As the Apostle Paul goes on decades later to write in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right, the king has come. The armor is being built and the battle lines are set. The second thing contextually is let's look at a story that Jesus tells. This is in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Here, Jesus has sent out 72 of his disciples and they have been given the power to heal and to cast out demons and they come and report back to Jesus. And here's what we read. The 72 returned to Jesus with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. But nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. So there's a lot in there, but what I want to point out is that in verse 18 there, in the middle of of, of that story. Jesus tells this short story to situate the disciples properly in the context of what's going on during his ministry. Here's the story he tells. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Eight words. The disciples have come back rejoicing in the power that Jesus has given them over the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus immediately corrects them. He warns them. He says, Satan was once himself an angel in the kingdom of heaven who rejoiced in the power that he had, but he fell so in love with his own power that he rebelled against God, who cast him out of heaven and down to earth, splitting the kingdom of heaven and in a way that ultimately led to the fall of humanity into sin. And ever since, the battle has been raging between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. That's the battle that Jesus has come to fight and to win. And so when Jesus sees these disciples rejoicing in the power they've been given, Jesus says, I've seen this before, be careful. Don't rejoice in anything except the kingdom of God. Rejoice in the kingdom of God and her king. And so what we see here is another one of Jesus' clear teaching on the reality 
that there are two kingdoms. There was once one kingdom. Ever since that kingdom was split by Satan's rebellion, the war has been raging between the kingdom of heaven under God and the kingdom of this world under Satan. And it's perhaps important to note here, briefly, that there are two and only two kingdoms. There's no third kingdom. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. Every action in the world is serving one of these two kingdoms. There's no third way. There is no spiritually neutral activity. This is why the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. This is also why God hates sin so much. Not only are you doing damage to yourself and those around, not only are you failing to worship God, but every act of sin is handing yourself over to Satan, giving him glory in your life and territory in your heart, robbing God of the glory due to his name. So when Jesus tells his disciples the story, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's catching them up with what's been going on. The battle is not ultimately about you and me and our individual struggles. It's about God and the kingdom of darkness. The third thing to round out this first point, let's look at the prayer that Jesus prays. Think with me briefly about the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Based on what we've talked about thus far, notice how this prayer is basically a battle cry. Father in heaven, your name is holy. There is no other name, no other kingdom worthy of the exaltation due your name. Every time this prayer is prayed, it is a dagger to the heart of Satan, that glory-hungry fallen angel. Furthermore, Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about what Jesus is telling us to pray for. Whose kingdom is currently operating in this world? That's Satan's. Right? And Jesus says, we're going to pray. I'm going to teach you to pray, to do battle by praying that the kingdom of God would come and replace Satan's kingdom in this world. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God's people are to press on in prayer, pushing back the darkness of the enemy. So the Lord's prayer is, in a way, it's many things. One of those things is it's a battle cry against the kingdom of darkness. So to pull together these three things we've looked at, Jesus arrives on the scene as the king in the kingdom of God come to do battle with the kingdom of this world. As he recruits, he builds this team, demonstrating for them the kind of power he came to exercise over the kingdom of darkness. Then he sends us out, sends out his disciples in that same power to do battle against forces of darkness. But he warns them that there's danger in falling in love with this power. It's not ultimately about the power we enjoy, but about the king in whose fellowship we get to dwell and abide. And then the third thing is he teaches them how to pray. He shows them that their prayers ought to be characterized by, directed towards the battle that is really being waged, that of the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of this world. And while I don't want to overstate my point in this first point, don't want to overstate this, but I also, I, I risk doing so because I think the risk for us today is actually on the other side. 
I believe that we're at a point in time and a place in culture where even as Christians, we've unfortunately grown accustomed to skimming over the spiritual language in the Bible. In an age in which devices are seeking to sow division with every click, in an age in which it feels like the world is kind of coming apart, so often it seems as though the solutions we so readily jump at, even as Christians, are things like finding better leaders, reading the next great book, or finding the right counselor. And I am, for one, quite supportive of good leaders, good books, and good counselors. But what is so often missing from our conversations is actually naming and describing the spiritual battle we're in. Asking for help in, encouraging one another towards a real tangible practice of wrestling to depend on God in everything that we do. We ought to be, as the church, an unapologetically spiritual community. I heard that said uh, about a week and a half ago. We ought to depend on the Holy Spirit as our counselor and helper in all things, including the battle that is going on in the unseen spiritual realm. And too often, we get sidetracked simply by the things that we can see with our eyes. We look to place our hope in things that we can see, whether they be things like actual things or ideas that we can grasp with our minds. If we don't understand that there are two kingdoms at war, that that is the battle that Jesus came to fight, to lead his people into and then through, then we might miss the significance of the parable of the sower. Thinking it's just about you making sure you don't miss the seed of the word that is planted in the soil of your heart. Of course, it's certainly somewhat about that, but it's also about much more than that. It's about a cosmic battle that is taking place. As Jesus, and it's about the kingdom of God breaking into the world amidst opposition, as Jesus tells us explicitly in the middle of this passage. So, With that said, let's move on to the second point, the four soils. Read with me Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them in many things, many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. So picture the scene. Jesus is you know, declaring the gospel of the kingdom. I am the king who has come, the Messiah who has come to secure salvation, to crush the head of the serpent. This is his message. And a large crowd, we're told, has come so large that he has to get into a boat and back up so that he can speak and be heard by all who are present. Verse three, listen, he says, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So to stop there. There's basically two chunks in this passage, the parable itself and then the explanation of what it means. So let's look at what he's saying here. There's three main things in this parable. There's a sower, there's seed, and there's soil. If you notice, there's only one thing that changes throughout the parable, the soil. There's a sense in which this really could be called the parable of the soils rather than the parable of the sower, but nevertheless, a sower goes out scattering his seed, which falls on these four different kinds of soil. A path, which is hard soil, We have rocky soil. We have soil that's overgrown with thorns, and then we have good soil. And the nature of the soil determines the yield. In the one, the seed doesn't even have time to sprout because the soil is too hard to let it drop in and take root. In the second, 
And third, the seed sprouts, but something happens that renders it fruitless or dead. In the second, it dies, and in the third, it survives, but is kept from bearing fruit. Only in the fourth, the good soil, does the seed not only sprout, but bear fruit, which is what a farmer wants his crops to do. So what would have been going through the minds of Jesus' hearers? Well, for us, this sower might sound like a bad farmer, like a really wasteful farmer. What is he doing wasting all of his seed? He's throwing it on rocky soil. He's throwing it on a hard path. He's throwing it all over the place. Only a bit of it is landing in good soil, but that's not what's happening. This sower is doing what sowers in the ancient Near East knew they needed to do. They were farming in dry and rocky land. They know that not all of the seed is going to sprout, so the sower needs to sow liberally knowing that some will not survive, but some will hopefully find good soil and sprout grain. So to them, this wouldn't have sounded, to Jesus' original hearers, this wouldn't have sounded unwise. It would have sounded like good farming. But what would have caught their ear, one of the things that would have caught their ear, perhaps the main thing, was how fruitful the harvest was, the amount of fruit. It was normal in this day and age for grain seeds to bear a six to seven-fold yield, perhaps 10 to 12 on a good year. Jesus here, though, says that these seeds will bear 30, 60, or 100-fold. This is a super abundant harvest, borderline miraculous harvest. That would have stuck out to his hearers. And perhaps one reason that would have caught their ear especially was that up until this point in the parable, they weren't seeing it yet with Jesus and his ministry. Jesus' emphasis has been on the struggle that so many seeds face, the struggle it is to farm and the things working against the farmer at all times— And that would have resonated with these farmers who knew how hard it was to farm and how vigilant they needed to be and how disappointing it often was. But what is Jesus doing? As he goes on to explain, we'll see that Jesus is explaining the real battle that is taking place as the kingdom of heaven expands despite opposition from the kingdom of this world. You see, as the disciples were watching Jesus, as they were watching his ministry and the many different responses he received, perhaps the key question in their minds at this point that Jesus is telling in this parable to answer is this. Jesus, if you're the king, why do so many people not listen to you? Like if you truly are the son of God, the Messiah sent, why is it that so many people are hearing what you have to say and then going away and not listening? So this is essentially what Jesus is engaging with. And so let's look at how he interprets the parable for his disciples. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus says, you must know that this is about the kingdom of God. So first off, he's bringing it down. to like, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. If you miss this, then you'll miss the point of all the parables because all I'm talking about is the kingdom. And he begins to explain, starting with the seed. He says, the sower sows the word. He tells us that the seed is the word. Then he goes on to explain what each of the different types of soil refers to soils, excuse me, refer to. And in his explanation, Jesus introduces us to this threefold front against which the kingdom of heaven is placed. The threefold front against which we fight, which is a triad that you may be familiar with if you've been around the church for any time, the world, the flesh, and the devil. As Jesus, excuse me, as the kingdom of heaven pushes forward, these are the three main things, Jesus says, that are warring for the souls of every human being, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And let's look at each of these and, what, and how Jesus talks about them. Jesus starts with the devil. Look at verse 15. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, this is the hard soil. These are the ones. 
When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus says to his disciples, the seeds that fall on the path and are eaten up the birds, that's uh, eaten up by the birds, that's Satan. That's what Satan does. There's two things to note here that Satan does. First, the soil is hardened. And second, the word of the gospel is snatched up. These are both things that Satan does. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes this, The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So did you hear what Paul says there? He said that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers, hardening their hearts in such a way that when they do hear the word of the gospel, it just bounces right off, going in one ear and out the other, so to speak, so that they miss it. Makes me think of someone reading a, a political cartoon and just seeing a pretty picture, missing the point entirely. Because of the hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness that Satan has trapped them in, even the truth of the gospel will bounce right off, being lost on the hearer. And Satan is waiting, prowling around like a hungry lion, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, ready to snatch up the seed of the gospel, lest it linger too long and have a chance to take root. And so right off the bat here, Jesus is telling us something. He says, you must know that there is more going on here than people simply choosing whether or not to believe the gospel. There is a dominion into which we are born, a kingdom governed by a governed, excuse me, by a real and powerful adversary who is working day and night against the purposes of God in the world. And you must know this. To give one application of this, going back to something I mentioned a moment ago, this is one of the reasons that God hates sin so much. Not only does sin wrong God, but it also gives Satan real territory in our lives and in our hearts. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, when we sin, we present ourselves as instruments to unrighteousness. And Paul's talking about something specific there. In other words, we are presenting ourselves as instruments in Satan's hands to be used for his purposes rather than instruments in God's hands to be used for God's purposes. One of the ways that Satan works to harden our hearts is through our own sin. Justifying sin is not, not that big of a deal. I'll get to it tomorrow. Using the, you know, nobody's perfect using that as an excuse, or even being convinced that some parts of Scripture just don't apply anymore. Satan knows that if he can get us to give ourselves to sin, to disobedience to the Word of God, then our hearts will be hardened and will not be able to truly hear and respond to the gospel. Satan knows this. Whether it's external actions or our internal thought lives, whether it's something out there or something that we do in secret, if we are living in unrepentant or undealt with sin, there is a part of you that is still in allegiance to the kingdom of darkness with Satan at the helm, working to harden your heart, seeking to keep the gospel out. As so many of us know from our personal testimony of learning what it means to be a Christian, God doesn't ask for part of us. He asks for the whole thing. He demands all of us, every square inch of territory in our hearts is to be given over to God and brought into the light. And Satan will do whatever he can to keep us, even seemingly tiny parts of us. If you can't keep the whole person, he can just keep a little tiny bit of territory. Because he knows, he knows that if he gets even a small piece, he's that much closer to getting all of us. So that's 
the first thing Jesus points to is the devil. From the devil, he moves on to the flesh. Look at verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So here's what Jesus, I think, is saying here. The flesh wants above all else, which speaking of the natural man or woman, right? The flesh wants above all else comfort, satisfaction, and pleasure. And oftentimes, at least initially, the gospel can seem to offer all three of these things, comfort, satisfaction, and pleasure. And so we jump in wholeheartedly. When you receive, excuse me, what you receive in Christianity might be awesome. You find the community that you've been looking for. You find the favor with others that you've been looking for. Your internal self-talk feels a lot better than it used to. Your life starts to feel like it has more meaning and purpose to it than it did before. But inevitably, tribulation or persecution of some sort will come. We're told throughout the Bible that this will come if we are indeed, if we are indeed following in Jesus' footsteps. And when that happens, the flesh often responds, hang on, this this isn't what I thought I was signing up for. And the temptation from the flesh will be to hit the eject button. This isn't what I signed up for. The flesh will be tempted to look straight to other things, often the very same things that the flesh sought before the gospel began to take root, take root whether that's anger, excuse me, <laughs> whether that's anger, money, sex, drugs, you name it, things that make you feel in control and satisfied. Flesh will seek after those things, and a person can experience something of a relapse back into your old ways. If this happens, this reveals that your relationship with God through the gospel wasn't primarily one of trust, but one of consumption. Satan is, of course, active in this realm too. He'll be whispering in your ear, God is holding out on you. Satan will whisper, tempting us to find satisfaction for our flesh somewhere other than God. The Bible paints a clear picture, though, that to follow Christ is to leave the kingdom of this world, which means death to self in ways that aren't left in the theoretical or unexplained realm, according to the Bible. This is nothing short of, um, as Kierkegaard once wrote, this is sacrifice of your own happiness and comfort for the sake of others. That's what death to self means. That's what following Jesus means. The spirit of this age, though, is all about the flesh. Think about the messages that we hear in the culture around us about self-care, things that are vitally important like regular exercise, healthy eating, or a full night's sleep. These are good things. But the message coming from the flesh is that these things are ultimate and that anything that gets in the way of these things should probably be avoided like needy people or children. But following Christ may involve laying these things down and instead taking up your cross. It's not just laying down the bad things, that's a given, but it may be laying down some good things too. Taking up your cross, it might even mean, you know, it might mean missing meals, losing sleep, even incurring real risk or harm for the sake of caring for those in need as Jesus himself did. Satan will always try to worship that it's not, or excuse me, whisper that it's not worth it. But the truth, as Jesus tells us later on in Mark chapter 8, is that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Because it's precisely and only in the midst 
of that poverty and the sacrifice and fleshly loss that we experience a blessedness in Christ that the world can't touch. We love to believe otherwise, but that is the truth of the gospel as Jesus gives it to us. Finally, after the flesh, Jesus moves on to the world. Look at verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So in this soil, which we have every indication is actually reasonably good soil, we see that the seed has been able to take root and to grow a little bit, but that the cares of the world have choked it out. It's still alive, but it doesn't yield any grain. This one is particularly difficult because the cares of the world are often good things. You'll see some of these things are blending together. This can be your marriage or your children, your work, your money, the influence that you have. You can certainly use all of these things for good, for the glory of God. But similar to Jesus' warning that his disciples not find their joy in the power that he's given them over the forces of spiritual darkness, his warning here is not to be deceived by the riches or the cares that this world drags us into thinking about, thinking that in them you will find joy. Because as long as your joy is in the kingdom of this world, that will keep you from being fruitful in the kingdom of God. That's the point here. As long as your joy is found, ultimately, in the kingdom of this world, that will keep you from being fruitful in the kingdom of God. And this is clearly not talking about sin or about illicit behavior that's inappropriate in any situation. This is engaging with things that can be used for good. Again, relationships, money, work, so forth. But the problem is that we can be deceived. There's a strong word there that Jesus used, uses. We can be deceived into finding joy, satisfaction, and even identity in the good things of this world rather than in the kingdom of God. And it isn't hard to understand how this goes wrong. Think about it. If you are primarily concerned about your job, about your safety, about your social life, your mental, emotional, physical health, all the other things that you need to be doing to be a good and successful member of society, what do all of those cares tend to crowd out? Meeting people, serving them for their sake, and sharing about Jesus. This is how Eugene Peterson paraphrased verses 8 through 19, excuse me, 18 and 19 of our passage. Eugene Peterson wrote the message translation. Here's how he summarized those verses. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. You see, the soil does seem to be good and the seed grows and stays alive. It just doesn't bear any fruit. As one commentator summarizes this one, this is a picture of discipleship which survives but is unproductive. So using these three soils, Jesus gives us a picture of the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness as a way of warning his hearers, of warning you and me of what the enemy and his host will use to try to prevent us from hearing, from truly hearing and engaging and responding to the word of God. And to pause for just a moment here, perhaps one of these three things is speaking a little bit more loudly to you today than the other two. Could be the seed along the path that Satan snatches at. Maybe you've given Satan dominion in some part of your life, preventing the word of truth from taking root. It could be the seed on rocky ground that your experience of Christianity hasn't turned out the way that you thought it would. 
and you're being tempted in the flesh to find satisfaction, comfort, safety, or pleasure in places other than Christ and the covenant community, just in case you say, God doesn't pull through on what he promises. Or it could be the seed among thorns, that your money, your job, your relationships, no matter how good and promising they might be, are choking out the fruit that God wants to bear in your life. And I want to say, I'll I'll say two things here. One, consider it a grace that if that's the case, if one of those or a couple of them are speaking more loudly to you this morning, consider that a grace from God that he is revealing this to you. That's a sign that hardness of heart is not fully taken over. Bring these things into the light. Lean into your brothers or your sisters in your neighborhood parish and confess sin where necessary. Come to the prayer gathering tonight at five and ask for prayer about it. Join a parish if you haven't yet. Make new friends. Invite the people of the light into even the dark parts of your life so that all might be brought into the light and lived in the open where God's mercy and grace flow freely. The second thing I want to say is that it's important to caveat the question of which one of those is kind of speaking more loudly to you with with the understanding that each of these three things is a danger for every person in this room at all times. Each of these three things, Satan, the flesh, and the world, is a danger for every person in this room at all times. Not one of us is immune to even one of these three things at any point. Jesus says this parable, this whole parable, to all of his hearers. In several other places in the Bible, we see these three things, Satan, the world, the flesh, referred to as real dangers for Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, for those who are in Christ, we know the outcome of this battle. This is not a danger that should drive us towards fear and uncertainty, but this is a danger that should drive us towards wisdom and full dependence on God who is able to sustain and protect us rather than ourselves. Every moment in our lives is an opportunity to grow towards or away from Christ-likeness. And this is a battle that's real for each of us and won't end until Jesus' return or our death, whichever comes first. And Jesus doesn't leave us there. Verse 20, Jesus finishes with the good soil, giving us a window into the way that he intends to bear fruit in our lives. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So what does Jesus say here? He says, the seeds that fall on the good soil are like the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit in abundance. So the answer, the thing that Jesus is pointing to is that the good soil is those who hear and accept God's word and watch it bear fruit in their lives. But let me make, I think, an important clarification. It would be easy to misunderstand this whole parable as telling us to be good people, making our hearts into good soil that are therefore ready to receive the seed of the gospel and that if we don't do a good enough job of readying our hearts to receive the gospel, then we will miss it. That, I would say, is a misunderstanding of this parable. Jesus is not telling us to fix the soil of our hearts. He is warning us of threats that will come up over the course of our lives of discipleship. Here's what I mean. Think back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What does he do right after announcing the coming of the kingdom of God? He goes and recruits the first disciples. And do you remember what he says? I read it earlier. He says, follow me for I see that you are ready in your hearts to be fishers of men. That's not what he says. 
He says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Jesus' disciples were not living their lives, preparing their hearts to receive the seed of the gospel. There is nothing they did to earn the grace of Jesus in calling them to come and follow him. They didn't present themselves to Jesus as ready and willing, good-hearted, good-soiled people, you know, heart-soiled people ready for the seed of the gospel. No, Jesus set his eyes upon them. He set his heart upon them and he called them to himself. And over the course of his ministry, and even after his death and resurrection by the power of the Spirit, he makes them to become fishers of men. He does that. And here, later on in the same story, Jesus is telling this parable to these same disciples who he had invited by his grace to follow him in order that they might be wise in understanding the struggles they will face as they seek to continue following Jesus for the whole course of their lives. In other words, this parable is not about good works to make good soil, but about trusting in a greater power than the power of this world to soften our hearts, to empower us to respond to the call to repent and believe with faith and trust and to sustain us along the journey. And this is point three, the greater power. In the middle of our passage, in between the parable and its explanation, those around Jesus ask him about the parables. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 11, Jesus says to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter six, where if you're familiar with the story, Isaiah chapter six, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament is given a vision of God. He falls flat on his face. God saves him, speaks words of mercy over Isaiah and then sends Isaiah to go preach that, you know, Isaiah has this amazing experience of being saved by God. Uh, and then God asks, I need someone who will go. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so God gives him, okay, here's the thing. You're going to go preach the good news of the kingdom. God says this to Isaiah, but you're going to preach and they're not going to, they're going to see you, but they won't see. Hearing, they won't hear. You're going to preach to deaf ears. And so Jesus quotes this refers to Isaiah's ministry and the, the, what God tells to Isaiah. And in doing so, Jesus is addressing the question that is undoubtedly in the minds of his hearers. And even, honestly, in our minds today as readers of Mark, is, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, why do so many people not respond well to him? Why is there such a mixed response? And Jesus' response here is essentially, guys, this is nothing new. Unbelief and opposition to God is the expected response to God's redemptive work in the world. As it was with the prophets, Jesus says, so it is with me. This is nothing new, nothing to be surprised about. There's always throughout the Bible, a sharp distinction between the disciples to whom God entrusts the mystery of the kingdom and the unbelieving multitude from whom the truth is concealed. And a lot of ink, a lot of books have been writing, a lot of ink has been spilled wrestling with why this is the case is helpful to consider alongside these parables, the doctrine of election, which you may be familiar with, in which we're told that many are called, but few are chosen. But here, I don't think Jesus is talking about election just yet. Instead, if you don't know what election is, just remove that from your mind for right now. I think the focus here is on Jesus's ministry of invitation and his encouragement to his disciples that unfavorable responses aren't surprising. They're inevitable. 
And furthermore, this doesn't mean Jesus is not saying that those outside are denied the possibility of ever believing. It simply means that they won't move forward in any understanding of the kingdom of God and what he's doing through Jesus until they do believe. And this belief only comes by the grace of God. And that's the emphasis here. We are not to spend so much time looking at the soils that we make them the emphasis of the parable and what we need to do in order to prepare our hearts to receive the gospel. The emphasis, the main point of this parable is to focus on the one who cuts through unbelief and extends grace. The one who alone is able to overcome all opposition. You see, the ultimate picture of fruitfulness comes in what Jesus is preparing to do. Jesus tells this parable to his hearers as he is preparing to suffer exactly, precisely because of the unbelief of the people. Amazingly, the unbelief of Jesus' hearers, which his disciples no doubt see as an obstacle, is the very thing that God will use in order to go back and save those lost sheep. It is their unbelief that sends Jesus to the cross where he dies in order to pay for their sins. So that unbelief, which from the eyes of the world says, Jesus, why are so many people not believing in you? Why this big mixed response? He looks at them and says, guys, this is to be expected. Not only is it to be expected, this is something, it's even this thing that God is going to use to bring about salvation. Rather than the punishment for unbelief, in other words, falling on the people, ultimately it falls on Jesus, whose death and resurrection unleashed a new creation through which the seed of the gospel germinated and continues to bear abundant fruit. You see, in a real sense, the good soil here points to Jesus and his faithful response on our behalf. And while inhospitable soil is something for us to be mindful of, it doesn't get in Jesus' way. One thing that several commentators point out that is that in ancient Palestine, which is the, the region in the Middle East where Jesus' life and ministry take place, in ancient Palestine, the soil was tilled and churned after seed was sown. Several commentators are careful to point this out. Seed is sown and the ground might look inhospitable to it, but then the farmer will go in, the sower will go in afterwards and till the soil after the seed is sown to, to turn it into the soil. So even if the seed, excuse me, the soil looks inhospitable initially, it may yet later bear fruit. You see, no matter how inhospitable you or me feel to the word of God, to the ministry of the gospel, no matter how inhospitable that person next door to you, in your house, down the street, in a cubicle next to you, no matter how inhospitable that looks, the churner of the soil is coming along. Jesus tells this parable to reveal things to his people about his kingdom. And his kingdom is one that is pushing back the forces of darkness, pressing onward to the ultimate victory of good over evil, light over darkness, righteousness over unrighteousness, God over Satan. And the only way into this kingdom is hearing his call and following him through no good of our own, simply hearing and responding. And the good news here is that the belief is not a work that we have to do ourselves because by ourselves, it is impossible, but brothers, sisters, friends, the answer is God in his mercy, opening our eyes and ears, tilling the soil of our hearts to make it good soil so that we can receive and respond to the ministry of the word, the word of God, which is presented to us, Jesus, the word himself made flesh in faith, full of confidence that he will hold us fast and see that we bear fruit in this life. So as I close, I think there's three things that we can 
take away from this passage this morning? The first thing is that we are to be, like I said earlier, an unapologetically spiritual people. We must realize, sojourn, that there is a spiritual battle going on and that we must depend on God to guide us and to protect us. With that said, we should not make the mistake of focusing on the spiritual realm alone and on spiritual power and so forth. We don't need to have an imbalanced understanding of the spiritual, the fleshly, the worldly, as though that is some complicated problem that we need to solve and we spend all of our time figuring out all the different kinds of soil. Jesus has already solved that problem for us. And so instead, we get to live lives fully devoted to Christ, who holds each of the three in perfect balance. Jesus came into the world to show his power over it. He took on flesh to be the first fruit of a newly created humanity, and he repeatedly demonstrated his power over Satan, revealing his authority and the surety of his ultimate victory. So first, we are an unapologetically spiritual people, but this is balanced by the second thing that we can take away. We are a word-based people. What is the seed in this parable? The word. Jesus tells us that the seed is the word. The the most precious thing in the whole world is the word of God, which is given to us. I'm not being trite here as a Christian preacher saying you guys should care about your Bibles. Seriously, the most precious thing as Christians for the whole world is the word of God preserved and kept for us in the Bible. The spiritual battle that we are in should drive us straight to the word, which is sure, it is certain, it is a foundation for our faith. The focus of this parable is the sower sowing seed, which is the word, the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus, which is the whole message of the Bible. So we must be aware of the spiritual battle, but we must not have our focus be on our own spiritual power. Instead, we must focus our dependence on God and his presence by the spirit and the actual physical, tangible gift he has given us, his word, the living and active word, which brings life. And then third, we must remember that we are not just an unapologetically spiritual people. We are not just a people who look at the word, but we are a people. We're an actual group of people. Jesus calls his disciples and he speaks to them as an actual gathering of people doing this together. This battle in our own lives is not something that we're doing alone. The greater battle of joining in the ministry of the kingdom is not something that we are doing alone either. Who is the sower? (laughs) There's one thing, this one question that Jesus doesn't answer in his interpretation is who the sower is in this parable. Who is it? Well, I think to take a moment and speculate for a moment that the word is both God the sower and then his whole ministry of farmers who he has sent out into the world to sow and scatter seeds abundantly. In seemingly wise, unwise, whatever it is, we should sow seeds that might seem foolish as we build and plant the garden of God. Sojourn Oak Forest, if you know anything about Sojourn Oak Forest, their like whole vision is about growing the garden of God, I think, if you've heard them give like a vision spiel. And so as we go, we are a people. Do not be discouraged. You will face real rejection like Jesus. If you are faithful to the call of discipleship, you will cast seed upon ground that will not sprout. But this is something that we're doing together. We're experiencing joys and victories together. And we're also experiencing disappointment and frustration together. We're experiencing personal victory and and, 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 and wondrous kind of experiences of the glorious grace of God in our lives. And we're experiencing personal defeats. 
bringing them to one another in confession and repentance and faith, asking one another to pray for us so that we may be healed. We are doing all of this together. Worshiping God like Christ did together. Scattering seed far and wide like Christ did together. Laying our lives down for the lost like Christ did together. And through this together, we get to experience the fullness of life and blessing just as Christ did together. May we be sojourn, an unapologetically spiritual people, dependent on God through his word, trusting in his power to bring life through his word, and remember always that we are doing this together as an actual group of people, a family of God, leaning into the Lord together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, your precious word that I too often take for granted. Thank you for this wonderful community, this church that I too often take for granted. And thank you for your presence with me among us as your people, which I too often take for granted. Thank you for reminding us through this passage, Lord, that there is a much larger battle going on that we can't see. I pray that you would use it to bring clarity in our lives where we are experiencing frustration and helplessness, feelings of powerlessness. Lord, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom where you intend for us to feel powerless. And so where we feel powerless, I pray that you would help us to flee from whatever it is that we're placing our hope in that is not you. Because if we come to you, we do come to you in weakness. And it is through our weakness that we watch you bring about strength and victory and power. And so Lord, please guide us and preserve us. Help us to depend on you more today than we did yesterday. Till the soil in our hearts, which is something that only you can do. And help us to, to see that seed watered, grown, bearing fruit today, tomorrow, in five years, in 10 years, in 10 generations from now. We love you, Lord. Please do it in Jesus' name. Amen.